Hello, welcome to the Unlocking Landscapes podcast. My name's Daniel Greenwood, and today I'm in Ham Street Woods National Nature Reserve, an ancient woodland in the Kentish Weald in South East England. And I'm lucky enough to be going for a walk with the writer Zoe Gilbert, who's just published a work of fiction inspired by woodlands called Mischief Acts. So we're gonna be going for a, a nice long walk listening for some birdsong, looking at some of the plants, and generally talking about the human history of woodlands, how woodlands inspired Zoe to write her book, in general what woodlands have meant to her in in recent times, obviously a very difficult period for everyone with the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're going to be listening to some birdsong, recording that some, some of that in here as well. It's May 2022, the height of spring really, so all the birds are out, they're all singing, and it's a wonderful time of year. So thanks for listening and really hope you enjoy the episode. So Zoe, what can you hear at the moment? Ah, I can hear robins, mostly. I just heard a crow or maybe it was a magpie. I can hear a motorbike. <laughs> and a road. Some kind of piece of machinery, or is it the train? Oh, did you hear that? Creaking tree. It's one of the hornbeams, I think, wasn't it? Almost bike. It's going to sound crunchy. So dry, isn't it? There's a little brook at the bottom of the wood, but it's looking very sorry for itself. It's yeah. a couple of inches brown water. So at the moment we're walking through a hornbeam coppice, which is where there's, well, there's hundreds of them, aren't there? Multi-stemmed trees. Look how eaten these leaves are. They've just been chewed to bits, lots of them. That's a hornbeam, isn't it? Yeah. I wonder what's done that then? Well, I was just trying to figure out whether it would be moth caterpillars. Well, I guess it could only be caterpillars. They've eaten a hole's right in the middle of leaves, but often the ones right on the ends of the tiniest twigs and quite low down, which was surprising. <laughs> Why aren't they up in the canopy? But maybe there's just been an infestation. I suppose there's a lot of hornbeam here, so there's going to be a kind of unnatural abundance of those <laughs> those moths, maybe. But um, hornbeam is quite an unusual tree to find nowadays, really, isn't it? Yeah, I, having left Sydenham Hillwood behind, I didn't come across it very much until I started exploring more woods in Kent that have been coppiced a lot, and some of them are returning to being coppiced. It's mostly chestnuts around here, but this one has absolutely masses of hornbeam, and there's always some hornbeam coppice, even if it's forming the edge of a lane or... Like a song thrush. Yeah, it's a song thrush. Maybe another one over there. Sort of sprinting, aren't they? Along the yeah. Path. 
I walked right up to a coal tip the other day and it just kept eating. It was really odd. <laughs> They're usually so flighty. Oh. I've just been on the Isle of Man for a week where it's very different kinds of woods. There's less deciduous woodland and more coniferous. Um, but also because it's, there are so many edges and they, they're a small island, they get lots of birds on their way through on migration. And I was surrounded by willow wobblers and wheat ears in a density I've never <laughs> experienced, which was really good for learning the songs because I'm still, still trying to commit some to memory. But it was, yeah, peculiar, shifting your range of small singing birds that much. Have you learnt the willow warbler song now? I think so. I hope so. I need to, I'll have to go back and practice next year, but a lot like a chaffinch, but without the kind of wheezy squirt at the end. <laughs> Nicely put. <laughs> well, they sound quite rude, chaffinches, don't they, when they get to the end and they kind of blow a raspberry. Yeah, they do, yeah. yeah. Oh, as we crow there. So what, what can we see now? More hornbeam. Yeah. <laughs> a massive oak. There are quite a few in here, much taller than the hornbeams. But the hornbeams look pretty happy. They're really gnarly, aren't they, some of them? Yeah, they are gnarly, yeah. And I, sp I suppose this is, the, this is the ancient landscape of Kent, really, isn't it? You know, outside of the, the downland and farms, the, the oak standard trees with the hornbeam coppices and tons of bluebells I mean they're going over now but going underneath yeah exactly that and loads of chestnut coppice as well and um yeah I was reading up about the history of these recently I often find history a good way into understanding a wood and apparently those chestnut coppices up near Canterbury where I often go at Kingswood they were originally being um, grown in that volume because they were the ideal sticks to grow hops up on the hops on the hop farms before they started growing them on wires so they were all going out to the thousands of acres of hop farms <laughs> just for that and people were making a lot of money so there's tons of it but the forestry commission or whoever um, manages bits of that wood are still managing bits of chestnut coppice i don't know where it's going probably firewood um a lot of it's used for um fencing so you, you get a lot of conservation fencing that's made from sweet chestnut. I think there's some here now, actually. Um, but yeah, it gets used in fencing. Um, so you get those rolls of fencing yes. with wire and stuff. But And they've got the points cut into the bottom already. I've seen heaps of wood like that, actually, in the wood, yeah. thinking about it, where they've just split the lovely straight trunks down the middle. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, sorry, what does it, Lucy said, what does it take? Um, how did you make a career, shall we say? Can we say that as, as a writer of fiction and folklore inspired by woods? <laughs> uh, I suppose you can call it a career, but it's never, it's no more secure than any other. <laughs> it's very much depends on the next thing you write, but... Uh, yeah, I started out writing short stories, really inspired by folk tales and folklore, but that is so inherently connected with the natural landscape and the history of human working life and domestic life in particular, I suppose, that those two things ended up melded together. And my first book was sort of folk folkloric stories, but they were set in a landscape that was 
completely inspired by the Isle of Man where I go quite often and has its own special atmosphere so without really noticing that I was doing it I was writing stories that could only that felt to me as if they could only emanate from a particular kind of landscape the Manx one <laughs> and then I just found myself again sort of only only wanting to write something that was inspired by another landscape which was the woods that are in Misty Facts and that that seems to be my pattern or maybe it gives me a reason to tell the story just nearly took a wrong turn there <laughs> oh no, I'm wrong. which one are we on Saxon Shore way this way okay <laughs> So, and without sort of it becoming your shtick, if you like, there is a, there's a kind of need, I suppose, to both write what you love and what entertains you. So I always try to write a book that I want to read. <laughs> um, but also people expect to be kind of carried along a little bit thematically, if you like, in the things that you write. And I was a bit worried I'd my preoccupations would completely change and having written folk I'd have done folk tales and landscape but that hasn't been the case and all my new ideas for stories or hopefully novels I'll manage to finish all again seem to emanate from particular landscapes and and also from folklore and ritual and custom that might be associated with them so how how I turned that into a career, I'm not quite sure, but I managed to get someone to publish a book, and that was that. But the one of the satisfying things about it is the conversations that it generates with other people who draw inspiration from the same things as you. And it's connected me with lots of other writers who also see folklore as a way of connecting with nature and landscape and who are also very inspired by physical wild places. Um, but all doing it in completely different ways, which is the beauty of writing creatively, writing fiction as opposed to non-fiction, is that, you know, you might all be inspired by the same wood or by the same bit of folklore, but everybody's interpretation will be completely unique, uh, which is very satisfying. I mean, your risk of writing a book that someone else is also writing is low, hopefully. Do you have any particular books or writers or people or things that particularly inspired you to make you want to write uh, I loved magic realism when I was a teenager and Gabriel Garcia Marquez of course oh, yeah. yes that's who I wanted to be I wanted yeah. to be him right down to the moustache obviously <laughs> you can't write like Marquez and Angela Carter was another big influence it's also impossible to write like Angela Carter but these things all go in and the bigger the delay, I think, between the stuff you love and what comes out as a result, the better, because it all gets kind of mixed into your own, hopefully your own relatively authentic way of writing. But I'm very much a believer in fantastical elements and magical elements that aren't full fantasy, but that can be there to deliver metaphorical meaning in books for adults that fantastical stuff is not just for kids and this is one of the difficulties of writing things with fantastical elements that aren't kind of high fantasy is it puts off some people and disappoints some other people so it's a slightly risky thing to do but I seem to be completely unable to leave it alone and I find ways of expressing things that way that I, I don't feel I'd be able to do 
with just pure realism or, or even, you know, non-fiction. So Zoe, um, your book, Mischief Acts, came out in March um, and it's about, well it's not quite about, you'll probably tell me better than this, but um, it's definitely inspired by woodland and an area of woodland which has been mentioned on this podcast before, <laughs> the Great North Wood in South London. Just really interested to know what sort of place woodland has in your life in terms of how it, how it inspires you and you know, sustains you and what it means to you, really. Yeah, I think I think beechwoods got planted in my head, as it were, when I was a kid, because that was where we'd usually go for a walk, being tempted around by my parents with bags of peanuts and raisins and chocolate chips. But they kind of lodged in there. And then when I lived in London for a good decade or more, I found myself near Epping, which Epping Forest, which became an enormous kind of refuge from the nightmare of the Euston Road and the smelliness of London. So I started walking there more and more and more and more and thought I would love to write about Epping Forest, which I didn't because then I moved to South London and ended up by Cinnamon Dulwich Woods, as mentioned previously on this podcast, (laughs) which was also, I suppose, an escape. It's quite a surprising thing to find in Zone 3 of South London in itself. And it has a personality bigger than its square metre <laughs> ground cover somehow. Um, but at the same time, my fiction writing is quite informed by folklore and folk tales. And a folk tale looks a lot like a forest, I suppose, in my head. And the Germanic folk tales that we've inherited, you know, the Grimm's tales and the ones that we're familiar with, usually involve woods. And so the idea of the wood being a place where you step beyond civilization, you're in an outlaw kind of space, uh, it's got a wildness that isn't just to do with plant and animal life, uh, but it's also a place where it's potentially dangerous, you might have encounters that you do or don't want, and the possibility of magic, I suppose, feels present in the wood to me in a way that it does not on the beach, say. <laughs> that must be something to do with the way my mind works. I find it quite difficult to write about um, open, flat places. So the woods feel like, yeah, a world that's full of possibilities. And I'm sure it's partly to do with the fact that you can get lost easily and you can't see where you're going and anything could happen. And certainly Sydenham Woods was, despite being quite small, a place where you could encounter almost anything because so many different people pass through it. So, yeah, I can't shake them off. And having, I thought I might get Woods out of my system by writing a woodsy novel. It's not going to happen because I'm already getting obsessed with new Woods now that I live in Kent. 
you, you've you've experienced woodlands from a young age, basically. I just have to ask you: Do you have a favourite tree? <laughs> uh, a specific, particular tree I love, or a type of tree, like a tree in the world, or a type. Oh, let's go with type. Yeah. Oh, that's difficult because I'm so fond of hornbeams, and that's partly because of Sydenham Wood and my the tree I've attached myself to in the Kingswood, which is the wood I go to most in Kent, is a hornbeam that I just feel attracted to but I also it's difficult not to say oak for Mm. all the obvious reasons that there's something uniquely comforting about an oak and they've been so overused as symbols and they appear in so much art and literature but because of their size and their age and just the shapes that they make I find and their leaves I find them extraordinarily beautiful I suppose you have to say that as well because we're surrounded by them at the moment, aren't we? <laughs> yes, both those kinds of trees. This is a good wood. Mind you, a t- very tall, straight stands of beech with the bluebells underneath or with light coming in through the side is, you know, that kind of cathedral effect that you can only get from um, mature beech wood that hasn't been tinkered with is heavenly. So this, it's hard to choose, isn't it? Maybe at different times of year, it's different trees. Yeah, it's a bit like trying to pick your favourite bird, isn't it? I mean, it changes all the time. Um, In terms of being a writer, I'm interested to know how being in Woodlands inspired you because, um, as I said to you before we were recording this, um, having spent a lot of time in in the wooded area where you've written a fantastic novel about, I I mean, and having having studied writing myself, but I'm not not an author or anything... um, I can see, could see that there was a lot of potential in it and you absolutely delivered on it. And I just wondered what inspired you to write the book in, in terms of, you know, Woodlands. I think my main way of connection, connecting with woods at the time, or particularly that wood, was less actually learning about the species of things that lived in it, but learning more about the associated folklore of the things that lived in it, but also of the people that had lived in it or used it. And luckily, thanks to local history societies, like I think the Dulwich one, who had a very comprehensive website, it's very, very easy to start digging into the history of that wood. And it is a pretty interesting and peopled history because of its location being so close to what was London, now absorbed into London, and having been, well, Chris Sheila's book is the ultimate one <laughs> to read, the wood that built London, you know, is important uh, and interesting. So I started reading about the history, partly because in that wood there are those amazing old crumbling foundations of the big houses that had been built there. There's the remains of the railway line. There's the closed-up tunnel with its purported ghost train. You know, you can't walk through that wood without thinking, well, why is this here and what's that about? And so the history was a big way in, but also, yes, the folklore of things and people. And there turned out to be plenty of both. So that was what got me started, really. And then how it developed from that vague idea of, of what would it be like to understand that whole sweep of history and are there any gaps or what are the most exciting things or the turning points for this wood and how does it change how we view it including the fact that it's come close to being wiped out altogether by housing development in the past got me going and then over a very long process I ended up with Hearn the Hunter as my kind of main character. Yeah Hearn the Hunter because I was really that's one of the things I really took away from the book as well was 
um, listen to it. it sounds like some book review podcast when it's not not at all um, but just the also because I was in the new forest for I did, I did some walking there recently and there was a there was like a the head of a deer on you know with the antlers on the wall and it had like a bow tie on it or something I was like turn the hunter I meant to send you a photo um, but this kind of this notion of like this mythical spirit or character and I'm going to totally get the language wrong about it that kind of travels through time and kind of lives on and you know I was what I was kind of going on about with that sense of time and in woodland and how it kind of is so different to being in different landscapes like be that in the built environment or yeah an open land or anything like that but I mean you know where did you what gave you the inspiration to create an individual or a character or spirit of the woodland like that I think I, I was thinking about how some things stay the same so in Sydenham Hill Woods there might not be a single tree in that patch that was there even 500 years ago I don't know maybe Um, and so we can't sort of walk through it and genuinely think oh I could be in the 1700s but some things stay the same or there there are kind of traces of continuity and the main thing that has stayed 100% the same is the nature of the human beings using the space you know I really don't like the idea of romanticizing the past and especially the working past so it wasn't romantic to be a charcoal burner in the great north woods and it wasn't romantic to be making tent pegs out of bits of trees and you know hard labor and people trying to survive by letting their pigs feed on beech mast in the common lands you know it's it's tough and it's interesting but it isn't cute and the forest was a resource for them in a way that it's different from the idea of the resource for our mental health which is how it's often framed now one should go forest bathing for an hour and all that but human nature hasn't really changed so I thought well you know the attitudes that we have towards the woods now you know the huge range of them across all kinds of people people who won't go near it and people who are in love with the woods that was probably just the same then but we have the same need for escape from our daily lives we have the same need for mischief and hijinks and letting off steam for you know looking at organic shapes as opposed to built shapes and the wood maybe symbolizes a different kind of escape well it wouldn't have symbolized escape for people who works in it but it probably works symbolically differently for people now who think of it as as a leisure space Uh, but at the same time the people using it hundreds or thousands of years ago would have felt the same as human beings do now. So Hearn the Hunter was a useful character for kind of embodying a continuity through history of people engaging with the wood, engaging differently, but being ultimately the same very messy human beings who are not always good, <laughs> however much they try, and are often quite bad. So that's the short version of, <laughs> of how I ended up with that. I think without being too spiritual about it you know all woods have their own atmosphere and even if each wood doesn't have its own sort of named spirit of place or a kind of protective spirit a genius loci is the expression um Herman Hunter is so associated with forests that I kind of nicked him from Windsor and Berkshire where Shakespeare has stuck him in time uh, because he seemed like a good one for protecting woods but also reminding us when we're messing things up in relation to woods yeah because he's a bit of a dude isn't he <laughs> like smoking a fag at the crystal palace or something like that um <laughs> but that that's really really interesting as well because um 
you're talking you're talking so much about the pe- people element the human element of woodlands it's just that you know humans are such a part of these woodlands aren't they and it's something that we just cannot cannot remove from the history and that these i mean in my opinion these woodlands are only going to survive if there are people walking in them and people writing books about them particularly in the way that you've written a book about them as well not just the kind of normal escape to nature that people have are doing at the moment i suppose yeah and i think Desimplifying the idea of what a wood is exactly. You know, I don't expect everyone to be as interested in the history of a given woodland as I might have been with that book and still find myself ferreting around for those histories when I get to know a new wood. But I think labelling them one way, even if we are going to treat them as a resource, if we just have the notion to sell people of forest bathing or picnicking or exercise or that if you like the wood and it you do find that spending time in it does you good kind of making your own relationship with it whatever that may be i think is important and we kind of slightly fetishize them might be too strong a word but they're becoming you know like these threatened which they are spaces of of kind of extraordinary beauty and we should revere them and reverence for nature is kind of an, an important arm of this whole kind of rewilding idea that's going around at the moment. And reverence is important as in don't damage unless you absolutely have to. But at the same time, the woods can be interesting rather than pleasurable always. <laughs> you know, They can be difficult and they can be confusing. And part of the pleasure I take in woods is going into woods on my own and feeling small and feeling that nothing cares about me it's an indifferent space that I can enjoy but I'm at its mercy to some extent Uh, you know that's true if you go anywhere wild on your own I guess but learning how to navigate the landscape how to enjoy it and how to enjoy getting a little bit scared (laughs) when you get lost or you think you think you know what you're doing and it's quite humbling that every time I think oh yes I know what I'm doing oh yes I don't need to look at my map oh yes you know and then I get lost it's like it's a it's a good reminder to have that there's this thing living around you and it and you know you're not in control and it's not it's not built for you and that I think when you have the high contrast of of a very dynamic and accessible to some extent city like London that you can shoot across on the tube and it's all everything's for humans or for some humans anyway the shock of the contrast of going into woods where you can get lost and it isn't designed to help you and um, is great and useful (laughs) you know it's kind of a part of the reset I suppose and that it's just gonna it's gonna be doing its thing and changing and you're not gonna say find the same thing in the same place necessarily you kind of have to respect what it's up to you without fully fully understanding it well for me anyway so we've just stepped off the path been very careful not to step on any of the um remnant bluebells and wooden enemies that are going over now in ham street woods national nature reserve and we're just sitting on a fallen oak tree here um and Zoe, I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you what place woods have had in your life. I mean, obviously, you've been waiting for your book to come out, and woods are such a big part of that. But particularly in the lockdown and the difficult sort of two years that we've had, have you spent a lot of time in visiting woodlands? Yes, I have, and partly because I moved to Kent in 
2018 down to the coast and sh only shortly afterwards realised how much there was to explore. So I was doing a lot of getting to know woods to go to and then getting to know those woods during pandemic time. The woods were noisy <laughs> with people and dogs and children, but you know, that was a good thing. But slowly, I think, I've been such a walker of woodlands and I still love tramping, that I slowed down a little bit and started just hanging out rather than trying to cover miles and looking at things and photographing things and trying to learn instead of just thinking, oh, look at those lovely bluebells, look at this gorgeous light through the beech leaves, trying to learn a bit more about what was around me and also kind of trying to learn to map the landscape on my own terms if you like so I mean I love a paper map and I love finding where I am on it but getting to know a wood kind of from your own perspective especially because they change the entire time has been a project that will keep me going and going <laughs> with the amount of woodland there is and with the woods that I've particularly fallen in love with so that slowing down was interesting and maybe it's because I'm getting older or maybe it's just that I've got more time in the wood uh, but that felt really important and it has really changed how they feel to me I'm glad that they're not becoming Piccadilly Circus every Sunday in the way that they were for a while uh, but I hope that that did make some other people want to explore more so I guess I have learned to feel even more comfortable in the woods and piecing together the landscape in new ways, which has felt good for me and good for the way that I think about the woods. And unfortunately, it just made me want to write more, <laughs> more about woods, which will happen eventually. So, woods. I mean, this isn't a one-off then, you know, Mystery Facts isn't a one-off in terms of woodland inspiring you to write books? No, I don't think it will be. I've committed myself to writing something set in Dungeness, which is if you could find the opposite of a wood, it would <laughs> yeah. be Dungeness because there isn't a single tree that isn't flattened against the ground, does literally. It, does there. it qualify as desert? <laughs> Almost, yeah. yes. I think not quite technically. but So there, for example, Hawthorne, which is in beautiful flower around here at the moment um, absolutely gorgeous there it, it literally does grow as a mat in the shingle and um the reason i set myself that task was because it's so difficult it's a massive challenge for me to engage with that landscape in the same way that i engage with woods i'm finding my way into describing it so much of it feels atmospheric and that's difficult to describe so yeah whether that turns out to be a form of torture or a good idea it's a challenge and then after that I don't know there, there's a wood in Kent called the Kingswood which is to me quite feels has some of the same feel to it that Epping Forest has and it, it is an old hunting ground wood with the wide rides and so I guess that characterizes it slightly and it's just big enough and interesting enough well they all are but particularly interesting to me that I think that'll probably be the wood that sucks me in next for writing and it's another one that's been incredibly well worked and well used and it's been a working wood supplying all kinds of things in Kent and has had some very interesting people living in it who are kind of recorded for posterity so I'm really looking forward to <laughs> reading around in there a bit more. So basically you're going to find the, the people and use those as inspiration for your characters and and the woodland will be like the beating heart will it or the 
this is what I'm thinking. I was reading about these various rules imposed upon people who were using the wood or working the wood. Um, for example, you being allowed to take, you know, as much wood, broken wood, as you could carry, as much as you needed, as long as you never snapped a branch and you could do what you want with it and take it home for firewood or whatever. I think it was called Estevas. Yep. Yeah, Estevas, yeah. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, which fascinated me because it's a kind of you have freedom but it's constrained and there are rules and you know there are certain things being quite harshly punished and quite a lot of competition about which bits of that wood that people got their hands on in terms of coppicing and making money Uh, but also the roles that people had you know living in in cottages lent to them by the big estates around the edge and then having to do their work for them in the wood and it feels these human relationships are the sources of tension and conflict which are fundamentally what makes a story at all and one of the things I discovered when I was writing about Sydenham and Dulwich Woods was how difficult it is to write a story about a wood without ending up with people because it's people that make stories in human conflicts and you know Richard Powers has really taken the bull by the horns with his book The Overstory trying to look at those tensions and conflicts and stick to trees as far as possible but his book is full of people for the same reason Um, so that's interesting but also that yeah, trying to see the wood through the eyes of people who were spending time in it for wildly different reasons from the ones that I do and understanding you know, how does it feel to work in a wood can you, do you still find it as beautiful as we do, say, on a day like this when the hornbeam leaves are all lit up and it feels magical and the air is full of little flying things? And it's that bite you. <laughs> that bite you, yeah. <laughs> or would you, really, would you really get tired of it? I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting point as well you make because woods are definitely places of conflict and I can think of so many, like having worked in conservation of a woodland and stuff I mean there is a lot of conflict (laughs) in that I mean but just in general though they are places of like restoration that people come to and renewal and there there are so many little stories happening I mean even just people walking like there's a lot of obviously you get clashes between people with who don't control their dogs very well or um, people who behave you know negatively like you know setting fires in woodlands you know like epping forest and stuff like that and mm-hmm. um, but you know p- you know people fly tipping and digging digging stuff up there's there's so much kind of tension in, in woods and i don't know what you think but I, I definitely get the sense that people go to a woodland and they have their perception of what that woodland is what the history of it is how it should be used and how they're going to use it and that creates all kinds of drama really yeah i totally agree with you um one of the things that, you know, going to spending time in woods in or near London, particularly, although now that I visit more woodlands out in the countryside in Kent, I think lots of mischief goes on in those as well. But, you know, in Sydenham and Dulwich Woods, there were those burnt out motorbikes that always lived down by the gate at the bottom of the wood, and there was various graffiti that would appear on the trees, which I found quite strange, uh, and more deleterious kinds of graffiti and just evidence that people had been partying and well everything under the sun really in quite a small patch of wood and I remember at first being a little bit 
tut tut telegraph about all of that and thinking oh this isn't and then I thought actually I'm gonna have to live in harmony with this there's a reason why this is happening here most of these people aren't trying to destroy the wood they're trying to get something they need that they're not able to do or get somewhere else and and maybe it's sad that those things end up happening in the woods but it feels kind of necessary in some way and you know show me an adult now who hasn't got up to no good in the woods as a teenager growing up at some point whether it's fires or no fires but there's that lure it's the other even when it's literally around the back of the street that you live in there's something appealing about it and I think yeah finding you're right of course it causes conflict but finding ways to sort of (laughs) tolerate each other and our different ways of using the woods not that I'm ever going to get used to plastic bags of dog poo hanging on branches, though. We'll chuck that one out. Yeah, that's like a skill, that, though, isn't it? I mean, like, how? How, does, how do people do that? Um, yeah, because, I mean, in the past two years in the UK, there's been, obviously, a lot of, a lot of people have gone to um, green spaces, blue spaces, whatever, you know, national parks, mm-hmm. areas of outstanding natural beauty, nature reserves, for the first time. And there's you know there's been issues around the way people use them and stuff and obviously young people have got a lot of the blame for all the negative stuff but i was just thinking as well i mean people we we, in the uk in particular we have this real culture of festival going Mm, like you know Glastonbury and reading and leeds and you and if I, i went to reading in 2005 and i was astonished on the last day to see how everyone burnt their tent and I'm like you know we basically put a fence around this it was actually a really nice place as well there's like a river going through the reading festival site but um there's kind of like this acceptance isn't there in society that you can go to this con- this defined green countryside area and just hammer it for three days and like hammer yourself as well and um and leave loads of rubbish that gets picked up later and you know in the pandemic people couldn't go to those festivals and so you know they'd been kind of in, encouraged and it's been accepted in society that you can do that so some people just went and did it in national parks and stuff and it's like it's so it's so much more complicated than yeah plastering someone's face on the front page of whichever <laughs> newspaper um the daily mail obviously would be would probably be one that was going for them a lot i know you read it in other papers like guardian and stuff but um but it's, it's interesting isn't it how people's psychological perception of these spaces is I don't know, it kind of comes back to to haunt them, doesn't it, in some ways? If that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> no, no, it does make sense. And it's interesting that people did turn to natural spaces during the pandemic for a whole range of reasons. I mean, obviously, we can use a lot of the indoor or the organised or the built spaces or the ones designed for those things. But, yeah, I mean, from a from a kind of intellectual point of view or from the point of view of a storytelling person I suppose and because of what I've been thinking about the woods and their role as a place to be wild be naughty let off steam or not be obeying the rules that you are obeying when you are walking down the street full of CCTV cameras and so on that one of the things I really wanted to address in my book and it without giving an answer to the problem or the question if you like was about the question of what happens to people when when they can't let off steam or they can't be rabble-rousing, they can't shriek and yell and be mischievous and do the things that 
come with the risk of harm. Um, and it seems as though it's been, it's always been important and it's still important for people to have those moments and, you know, parties, festivals are probably the ultimate in, in terms of transgressive behaviour for a lot of people. But even people who just want to get drunk and have a fight on Friday, it's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate way of letting off steam that that's what's happening. And people took that into national parks and into woods when they couldn't go and, and do it in places that might have been easier. Um, so in a, in a weird way, they were kind of demonstrating something that symbolically for me, the woods meant anyway. But it just points to the fact that it's a good thing that there are usually outlets for that to happen, that people are going to do it anyway. And if you can guide them gently away from the ancient woodland and towards this very convenient field with 500 litter pickers lined up along the edge, then so much the better. Um, but yeah, as a kind of clash between what we what we need to do for nature in terms of protecting it, and what we need to do for the human spirit in terms of protecting it. Not surprisingly, there's going to be a bit of conflict there. And when some of us who'd got used to having the woods nearly to ourselves were suddenly surrounded by people, it was a shock, and we weren't all terribly happy about it when when the pandemic kicked in. But at the same time, you know, we have to accept that people need certain things and one of the things that if one of the things they do need is to let rip and potentially cause harm well the harm can be to themselves but it's also going to be to nature if they happen to be doing it in the wrong place so yeah I think it's really complicated and while I'd very much like people never to do anything that's damaging to nature there is this problem or issue that goes alongside that which is that we do want people to be engaging with these spaces to, to become invested in them to love them and therefore be on side to protect them help look after them keep them alive and not say no I'd rather have 25 identical new houses please I think it is the fundamental difference between this infinitely organically shaped landscape that's very very complicated like the amount of detail that's meeting your eye if you just look up at the canopy but trees aren't arranged in rows you know it's, it is it's the opposite from walking along streets that have names on them and everything has right angles and straight lines and it's designed to take the places and it's all very organized but it's also very overlooked it's very difficult to walk through any town without someone seeing you and everything is quite open so the woods are closed in that way and the, literally the lack of straight lines and the fact that the paths, if the paths, a path is put in, say, for people to walk on and it just isn't where people want to walk, mm -hmm. they'll make their own. And desire lines. Desire lines, yeah, great exactly. Word. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and, and also you are hidden. You know, we could be 50 feet from someone and anyone could be standing behind one of these oak trees and arrows and we'd still have absolutely no idea so that kind the excitement of being hidden no straight lines and just often it being yeah you step you step out of the civilization like walk just walking from ham street station which is about a seven minute ride from ashford international pretty <laughs> urban you know and i walked along a little path through a re relatively modern housing development along the edge of a field and then suddenly I was in this wood and and it is almost like you've jumped through time and space <laughs> well yeah because i mean if you look at 
if you look at the plants around us, like we've got wood anemone growing here. I mean, that would have been growing here probably 5,000 years ago, <laughs> further back. And so these woods have been in this state of, of being having some tree cover and sustaining this kind of, this, um, these wildflower ecosystems and wildflower communities like English Bluebell got here as well. I mean, you know, they, the amount of things that these, these woods have lived through, I mean, and just not blinked. And that's a real, <laughs> that's, really that's really kind of encouraging and comforting in this, this day and age. And also there was a point you made there, I was just thinking about how we live in the age of social media where, you know, you're there to promote yourself and have your own profile and be trying to get more retweets and likes than everyone else. And, and then you can come to a place like this where I think, as you said earlier, you just basically, you're fairly meaningless to it and, and you can be forgotten and for like half an hour or something. And that, that's such an important thing, isn't it? It is the, the perfect antidote, but also a reminder of how horrible it is to be observing and observed all the time. And the woods, you know, for these, this reason of being able to be hidden in it very, very easily is good for escaping observation, whether that's social media or literally walking down the street and whether it's for nefarious reasons or for recovery reasons. But yes, that idea that, you know, if a tree falls in the wood and nobody saw it, didn't hap it did it happen, reminds me of that, that horrible internet-y phrase, pics or it didn't happen, you know, that oh, yeah. you're kind of, you're, you're completely invisible to the online world and to the entire world when you're in a wood I love that feeling that nobody knows where I am and no one can see me possibly dangerously but you know unless you bring your phone in and start Instagramming bluebells you've severed the connection and I find that a glorious feeling and I need quite a lot of it um, but also it just it rapidly diminishes the apparent importance of a lot of that empty connection you know I'm not saying you can walk into a wood and, and immediately encounter some, some deep meaning, but there is the possibility <laughs> yeah. here of being quietly enchanted without having to boast about it or without anybody showing you how. And that enchantment is another thing I'm interested in and it's very sort of connected with nature and it's a difficult thing to talk about without starting to sound twee and it's not that kind of enchantment that I'm thinking about but it's certainly something that is incredibly hard to generate via things like social media or the internet I think letting yourself be absorbed into a wood that, and a landscape that you can't really understand and you're not it's not going to give you anything back and it's not going to say well done you for identifying that plant and isn't that a pretty picture it couldn't give a damn and yeah, that's that leaves me feeling the grotesqueness, sadly, <laughs> of social media yeah. when I come out of a wood. No. Well, it kind of shows you that you don't, you know, you don't need that um, gratification, do you? Yeah. That, yeah, because um, yeah, social media is about dopamine hits, isn't it, and notifications and stuff. And they know that, and that's why it's become so powerful, particularly um, Facebook and stuff. Yes, um, randomised rewards. You've got a caterpillar on your headphones. Oh, have I? Oh, cool. It's probably fallen out. But I could feel something on my face, room. and I was like, oh, there's nothing there now. But, <laughs> yeah, just a substrate to be moved across. <laughs> That's fine. Oh, I'm not it's that thing, very with, good thing with insects, isn't it, when they start to get close to your sleeve? And you're yes. like, no, don't go under there. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. Although I did, it's a long story, but once have a, a, a mouse run up inside my sleeve and sit in the elbow of my coat. Oh. It was quite cute. That's nice. <laughs> I went to university in Liverpool and I had them in my bed. Mice? So yeah, I had a mattress on the oh. floor. That was. Did they yeah. wriggle in the night? <laughs> <laughs> they, they jumped off when I got there. But yeah, so it's yeah these issues are so complex aren't they we're sitting here talking about woods and it can just draw you out in so many different different things yes and always always back and forth towards people people's relationships with each other people's relationships with the landscape around them uh yeah it always always comes back to people and the future of these spaces obviously comes back to people as well um and that i tried to think about in a in a fantastical way because it's too too maybe hard on the soul to think about the, the literal future of some of our woods and wild spaces but yeah I tried to do a bit of that projecting when I was writing my book and I thought a lot about the near future especially of increasingly precious little green spaces yeah because your final chapter is is in the future isn't it yeah and um you know I've I've played fast and loose with reality and made a kind of a, a crazy over-the-top version of rewilding a bit of rewilding gone wrong in a but in a silly way because I think I don't know enough about it to have an informed opinion but it feels as though there are a thousand and one ways to do this and not all of them are good or you know I, I don't know that it's it's another one of those questions where the answer is it's complicated um, but yeah this kind of all these clashing needs for Spaced, spaces for people to live in for example but then the need for clean air and you know there doesn't seem to be any solution and just seeing how many times the Great North Wood and then Sydenham Wood as a remaining fragment of it have been threatened or, or used you know by a railway going through or houses built upon and then Houses nearly built upon again. Was it in the seventies or the eighties? I think the eighties. Yeah. yeah, I think maybe even it only kind of fell away in even the nineties. So yeah. yeah, and there are apartment blocks kind of right hard up to the edges in some places. Well, yeah, I mean that's really the thing nice. about woods as well, isn't it? Because they're becoming these islands, and they're dependent on connectivity in yeah. ecological terms. Nature corridors. Sorry, I think mosquitoes are lingering. Oh, no. <laughs> it's time they're here now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean woods it's almost like accepted that you can build up right close to them and they'll be fine and it's like no they won't they need to be connected we need to have yeah. more i think the, the the buzzword is contiguous you know yes. that connectivity of woodlands um and i mean the woodland we're in at the moment because we're, we're actually we're in the i'm not sure if we're just inside the boundary of the high wheeled i think we might be just outside the high high wheeled yeah area of outstanding natural beauty i mean i've traveled from the other side of it today so it's quite <laughs> interesting this is a place i do i do love to come to this part of sussex and kent, oh, kent sorry we're in kent or sussex kent god hope so i think we are <laughs> I, yeah i do like to come to this part of the, the high wheeled um but so we're currently in what i believe to be the most wooded area most wooded part of the uk that this part of sussex and kent is very densely wooded and it was known i think in the um by the romans as andreda's Fald or something like that i mean that's maybe the saxon version of of it but it was it was impenetrable Mm. to people i mean i think it's also because the landscape and the the um, topography of parts of the high weald but i mean this 
is an example of a medieval landscape that has largely remained and that's a lot of that is because of yeah people battling as they did in the days at Sydenham Hill Wood in the 80s and to protect it from being built on but also it's kind of being brought into protected landscapes of the high wheeled A&B and the Kent Kent yeah. Downs aren't far away are they so no not yeah. at all and Kent's seems to have a huge proportion of total woodland in England at least um, but it's also recently one of the most built upon counties because it's so close to London and because there's lots of nice flat land to put put new villages on and whatnot so it's complicated and you know I regularly hear people complaining about those new houses going up and yes another field disappearing and the pressure that they feel it's putting on a village or whatever and yet there is access to an extraordinary amount of woodland and it isn't it doesn't feel overcrowded when you're in the woods that's for sure but whether that balance can be kept and you know this idea of connecting woodlands and making sure that there are green routes for things other than human beings to move around on feels really important and at least i hope that that is considered while there's more building going on in Kent. yeah, yeah it's well, they're just about to reintroduce um bison well there's a debate about whether they're a native or species or whatever oh yeah but they're being reintroduced or introduced to a place not far from here aren't they um i can't remember the name of the site but um they like being in woodlands i've seen those in poland in the woods yeah they, oh wow yeah <laughs> um but they all well i may, mainly saw them in the clearings where they come out in that was in like march so i don't know what they'd have to eat really in the woods anyway but but they do like to be you know could buffalo obviously like open plain yeah don't they? but, but the bison european well. bison like like woodlands so <laughs> so i think there's there's one thing one important thing we should cover which is we've talked mm. a little bit about the future of woodlands and you know you've got that the mm. final chapter of your book is set in the future um and I was wondering what your, from the your work and your time in woods, I mean, what your feelings are about the future of woodlands, particularly in, in England, I suppose, because they're also mm. different, different places. Because though we, we, we're pretty good at protecting them, there are so many outside, there's this big outside influence, isn't there, of climate change and the sort of biodiversity crisis, but also the issues to do with pollution. So like, you know, nitrogen dioxide in the atmosphere and how that changes the soil um, composition and stuff like that and I was wondering what if you had any particular thoughts on where you think woodlands woodlands are going and if that if you've got any I wonder if any of your future if your what any of your future um, books will be <laughs> looking at in that respect <laughs> um, it's it's terrifying don't <laughs> think about the future of nature and I actually try not to do it too much and I you know the, the changes that I hadn't noticed just in a fairly bog-standard, ordinary English woodland. And, you know, when someone points out to me, or someone, an article points out to me the vertiginous drop in the number of flying insects, and you just think, oh, yeah, I hadn't really noticed. So that's unnerving. And I do wonder what changes I haven't noticed and how what changes we will con- continue to miss um, those well, of us can... who aren't actually studying or measuring which is is peculiar and, and a little bit worrying although enough people are on the case now that I'm kind of a mixture of hopeful because so many there have been so many resourceful 
useful projects that haven't cost the earth. So where I just was in the Isle of Man, <laughs> not surprisingly for the Isle of Man, quite a lot of the towns and villages have, you know, the place that has been the village tip for hundreds of years and it's literally just like by the stream that runs down to the village or whatever and other places where so at the point of air which is a bit like Dungeness and is this wonderful place where terns nest on the ground and at one end of it is landfill site but they've been repairing and restoring them and because they're still fenced off waiting for it to be safe for humans to access it they're full of birds and they're really happy there and it's right hard up against very rare lichen heath and the plants are creeping across and it's looking like it's looking pretty good so things like that make me think yeah you know as long as enough people care these things can happen what's frightening me the most is that there will always be something that beats the environment in terms of the news agenda always and so the chances of prioritizing without revolt or something (laughs) is feeling impossible and you know how can you look at a situation like you know genocide and think no 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 but we must talk about recycling it's impossible but we need to be able to do both and I don't really know how and I'm not particularly hopeful that writing about these things makes a difference or at least not a difference that counts there must be for you there there are positives because you're writing books you know, I mean, it is very difficult to write a book in itself, let alone, you know, get it, get it published and to go through all of the stuff I'm sure you've had to go through mm. as, as a published <laughs> author and being, you know, interviewed, um, not quite in the woods, I mean, but in like, you know, publications and stuff. Um, but to end on a sort of positive, looking at what kind of inspires you and motivates you to keep to keep looking at these things, even though there is there is pain attached to it as well. I mean, mm. what you know, what? What are those things? I think I just get more and more and more fascinated by the complicated and ambivalent relationships that human beings have with their local landscapes, particularly places where they're not always just there for recreation, but things that are kind of part of part of life, for better or worse, as work or, or leisure or whatever it may be. Um, and that is always changing and maybe not as direct as it has been in the past when manual work was to literally connected with your landscape because you will have been doing something on the land or in the wood or on the sea that was making or or catching but it's it, it's still endlessly interesting the way that people connect with their local landscapes and I suppose maybe that feeling for me might have well have been accelerated by the pandemic um, and your local landscape became your world if you yeah. could even get out into yeah. that. Yeah, it was it was like going back in time for people in Britain, wasn't it? To have have such a kind of dependency on your local space. In this case, it was for your well-being and your your health, wasn't it? Yeah, and also I suppose not not necessarily to do with the pandemic at all, but just there seems to be once you start to look and slow down and look closer and investigate you know there's a there's a fractal nature to nature you know the more you look the more you you find and the more you don't know and this is true of any kind of learning but that you don't have to go very far from your house or very far into a wood to find enough to occupy 
well my mind anyway probably for the rest of my life and that the excitements of what might be found at the end of long-haul flights and all of those things that I haven't been doing and we all need to be doing less of anyway is that depending on how you look what you can find not far from home if you're as you say in a privileged position to be able to get to these things is extraordinary and I find that deeply exciting that I (laughs) that what I write might get weirdly closer and closer to home because there's more and more and more to find and uh, that's a good thing that I hope will make other people also stop leaping on planes <laughs> and flying around for their holidays quite so much because you know the, the, it's not monotonous what is in the UK even or even in Kent it's not monotonous So Zoe it's been really great to talk to you here in Ham Street Woods National Nature Reserve thank you very much for inviting me to your manor was well, sort of your manner, um, as they say. Um, but yeah, it's been great talking to you. I mean, we've we've covered a lot of ground um, yeah. with both both feet, but also with with our minds as well. Um, and also, really would recommend Zoe's book, Mischief Acts, um, particularly if you're familiar with the Great Northwood in South London. Um, but if you're kind of getting a bit, you're looking for a different type of um, nature-focused or inspired writing potentially (laughs) then it's a really nice um be a really nice adventure for you as well um so zoe thank you so much thank you for having me it's been amazing to record in a wood and i feel as though the wood's been very kind to us in that regard and right now you have a caterpillar on your collar another one (laughs) it's right there oh there you are hello they love me (laughs) they do (laughs) okay thanks zoe Thanks very much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed listening to Zoe talking about what inspired her to write the book, her relationship with Woodlands, a little bit more about her book, Mischief Acts. And maybe it's inspired you to go and visit your local woodland or maybe look at your local woodland again or go further afield, maybe even write a book inspired by Woodlands. Um, But, you know, these are really important places, threatened like never before, and we really need to appreciate them while we can. Anyway, thanks for listening to Unlocking Landscapes. My name's Daniel Greenwood, speaking to Zoe Gilbert today. Take care. Bye.